Okay, we are live and we have the pleasure and the honor to have with us the one and only Jeffrey Sachs, Director for the Center of Sustainable Development. Mr. Sachs, thank you once again for joining us on another live stream. It is a pleasure to have you here with us. Great, great to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank so you. we, fantastic. We have about 30 minutes for this live stream. So I'm just going to say a quick hello to everybody that is watching us. A hello to all of our fantastic moderators. And I'm going to pass it over to Alexander and to Jeffrey so we can get into the discussion. There is a lot to talk about. Alexander, Jeffrey, let's, uh, let's get going. Absolutely. But I think the, we, since uh, we, we only have a limited amount of time, I think the thing to do is to ask our guest to discuss the topics that he wants. We've had an enormous amount of information about Nord Stream, but we've also had other things happening too. And I think rather than, you know, have an introduction from me, let's, let's, let's throw in Jeffrey. So your thoughts about where we are and what's happening and those sort of things. Yeah, why, why don't we start, start with Cy Hirsch uh, and, yeah. uh, and his yeah. uh, Substack posting a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah. It, it, uh, wasn't a shock, but he filled in uh, lots of interesting uh, bits uh, of this story. Um, I wait, waited, uh, and not surprisingly, in vain for some reaction from uh, the U.S. media. I, I didn't see a word, uh, I, I may have missed it, from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from places where a lot of people uh, look to get some information, so no mention of it. But basically, uh, you know, Seymour Hirsch, who is the greatest investigative reporter of, uh, of my lifetime uh, and has uncovered countless stories, uh, seemingly got some good sources to talk and explained how the U.S. blew up Nord Stream uh, and uh, gave a lot of interesting information. What, what's notable for me, aside from the complete silence uh, in uh, in the United States uh, about this is first, I haven't seen anybody uh, other than small possible corrections here or there go after the main story uh, and the kind of flat denial from the White House and from the CIA is uh, hardly convincing or informative or the flat denial from the government of Norway doesn't mean anything. Nobody went after the substance. A lot of people went after Hirsch, but that is par for the course and also meaningless. So I would say that the story uh, is, is passing muster. It certainly makes sense to me. It has uh, full credibility. It confirms uh, more or less what I believe from the first moment that, uh, of course, the U.S. did it. Who else? Uh, and um, that it was a terrible thing to do. Now, what's interesting, I think, for us is to watch really uh, what happens in Germany uh, after mm. this. This is the only place where I think uh, this story uh, is of real direct political interest enough that it can stir something. Uh, because after all, the U.S. blew up a, a critical piece of infrastructure, mm. absolutely critical for the German economy. It's a little weird that Germany's main ally uh, directly contributed mm. to the destruction of uh, German economic well-being. And um, at least some 
Bundestag members uh, on the left and the right outside of this coalition are asking, well, mm -hmm. you got to tell us at this point. And uh, I don't expect that to go away. So that's what I take away to be the, the, the main interesting follow-up is what does this mean inside Germany and will it have uh, uh, political legs? And my guess is that it will, uh, that you can't just make this go away. Uh, and it's, it's pretty clear there's no denying uh, the U.S. culpability at this point. I, I agree with all of that. Briefly, if, the, if this was untrue, I would have expected personally that the director of the CIA, who is, you know, one of the key decision makers, somebody at that level would be coming out and saying this is untrue. So we've not had that kind of denial. And about Germany, which is a country which I have some knowledge of, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a long fuse. Uh, this is a bomb with a very long fuse, but it could play out. And for the record, reports today in the British media that the relationship between the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, and his foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, have compl has completely broken down. Apparently, they're not even talking to each other. Um, Scholz is furious with her. They're careful not to mention Nord Stream, and I'm not suggesting anything. I'm not suggesting Baerbock was in any way involved in that. But apparently, uh, Scholz is very angry that, Be uh, that Baerbock was intriguing, as he would see it, uh, with um, other Western allies about getting tanks to Ukraine, something that Schultz didn't want to do. And he's discovered that um, Baerbock was going around urging other, other NATO states to do it. And I mean, there's already tensions there, and I suspect this is going to increase those tensions even more. Anyone not speaking with Baerbach is a friend of mine. Uh, that's uh, all I can say. Uh, unbelievable, the complete and total collapse of German diplomacy uh, and her militarism is uh, beyond uh, any boundaries uh, and any sense of Germany's uh, real interest. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, the sooner the better there is a split between uh, uh, them, uh, absolutely, uh, this is good for the world. You sense, although obviously uh, um, Schultz is very wobbly and maybe without the capacity to draw a real line, uh, he is pretty clearly reluctant uh, on what is this escalatory moment right now. And that's good. Uh, she is clearly the opposite, uh, and uh, that is a danger. And what is interesting about Hirsch's story, of course, is uh, he exactly explained who the small group that runs U.S. policy uh, really is. Not, not that it's a surprise, but uh, Blinken, Newland, uh, Sullivan, and, and Biden. Uh, these are the four neoconservatives in charge. It's interesting to me, uh, I had some outreach uh, with the uh, congressional people. Let's just say they said it's impossible, this story, it's false. I wrote back, I said, well, I think it's true. <laughs> uh, it makes perfect sense. I explained some things. No, no, it, it can't be uh, true. 
I said, no, 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 it, it, it actually really is. No, I would have known. And I, I said, you know, they're lying to you. Uh, actually, Hirsch is quite interesting in one of the details explaining how bureaucratically uh, uh, it was that they decided not to tell Congress on this. But what's interesting from the U.S. point of view, we have a Republican-led lower house right now. They could take interest in this. Uh, they could ask the question, who in Congress was informed about this? My guess is, from what I can see, the answer is nobody actually, mm. uh, not only from what Hearst says, but even from the interactions that I'm having. If that's the case, first, it wouldn't be a surprise. This is a typical CIA operation. Uh, but it also could, even strangely enough, in, in the neocon uh, heart, heart of the empire, uh, have implications because there is a, an opposition led house right now. And that, that could matter, actually, when, when I come to think about it. I mean, what I would simply say about that is this. I mean, you know, many people in Congress may support, you, you know, the war with Ukraine. They might want the escalation. But I can't believe that they will be happy to have been completely kept out of the loop. I mean, these people, I mean, that's not, I mean, unless American Congress people are completely different. From politicians and MPs and members of parliament in other countries. This goes so much against their prerogatives, I would have thought, that, you know, whatever feelings they might have about the war, I can't imagine that they would like this. I think you're right. Uh, I, I wrote back uh, uh, in, in one communication, you've been lied to, uh, and I did not hear a response, no, I haven't. I think I I heard somebody thinking about that reality uh, on the other side from the silence that followed. Uh, I think uh, this was pretty brazen. Uh, I don't think Jake Sullivan's uh, the most talented uh, of, of all uh, senior players in the administration. And, and I think he cooked this up and I think he kept Congress out of the loop. And, and uh, I think there will be some questions raised Anyway, let's let's not focus too much on this because we can discuss all this for, forever. But I mean, it's part of a, I mean, all this this issue is part of a bigger, larger sort of story. And um, we discussed that in our previous program and the fact that we're drifting ever deeper into a confrontation now with the Russians. We don't seem to be able to get off this escalator. I mean, are you worried about this? I mean, are people in the United States worried about this? Is people, are the forces now coming forward, speaking out against it? I sense there are, actually. I think that you're starting to see some pushback. But what is your feeling? Well, look, you know, once, once every couple of months, we have uh, at least an opinion survey. It's just about the only time that there's actually some sense of where the public is on on this, and the answer is uh, that on the Republican side of and the rank and file in the in the country, there's opposition to the war. There's a feeling that uh, the U.S. has already done too much. Uh, there's certainly no groundswell of support for any further escalation. 
On the Democratic side, I think there's basically division because Democrats follow their president. Uh, the president says we should do it, but people are very uneasy about it. What is overwhelmingly the case, though, not surprisingly, is none of this depends on public opinion uh, in its uh, motivation. This is not coming from a groundswell of public support for Ukraine or anything like that. No one's asking the public anything about this. Of course, if the public will turns against it, that will have some effect in Congress, modest as it is. The fact that the Republican base doesn't want more and the fact that one of the two houses in the U.S. is Republican-led is significant, actually. You can't openly call for large appropriation anymore. Biden's going to have to find other ways to stick in more money or weapon systems, things that he can do by executive order. There's no instinct to raise a, a public debate on this. Uh, now, what's happening in the senior reaches of, of politics? Of course, we know there that there's a heated debate between sensible people, uh, starting with the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Milley, who says this is the moment where we can uh, stop what is uh, right now on a losing path and get something versus the, the hardliners who are not only ideologically dug in, but now politically in a deep hole, uh, obviously. And that starts with the president, but especially a foreign policy team that he hired. Uh, as you've been uh, rightly uh, referring to, this RAND study is, is quite interesting. Not only is it you know, basically sensible, but obviously someone asked RAND to say to the political leadership, you're digging it a hole that is very deep and not good for American interests. So at the elite level inside the executive branch, there's no great enthusiasm about anything that's happening, that to say the least, there is a division between the neocons and I would say more realist, sensible people. Congress, uh, I think we have learned, is pretty much out of the loop on this right now. But, you know, as I've just said, the Republicans uh, in both uh, chambers are not going to be enthusiastic. Uh, this is definitely uh, uh, a, a period of rapidly diminishing support and interest. And I give it a few more months to play out. Of course, a lot will depend on on the battlefield and, and uh, all of this desperate attempt by uh, by Britain or by uh, Zelensky and others to uh, maximally commit uh, Western advanced weapon systems and the rest as fast as they can is is the game right now. Yeah, that's I, mean, I, I agree with all of that. Now, let's just talk quickly about how we got here, because there's another person who came up with extraordinarily important revelations. We had Hirsch about Nord Stream 2. And we've had the former Prime Minister of Israel, Mr. Bennett, telling us about how a negotiation that he was getting together, how that failed. And just as Hirsch's revelations, hardly any discussion about them, hardly any one of them about Bennett's. This was an avoidable war, 
or so it seems to me. It was avoidable before it started. It could have ended after it started. That's essentially, I think, what Bennett is saying. I mean, is that your reading as well? <laughs> it's extraordinary. I mean, it's it's just weird and fun to watch this guy because he's a little odd uh, and he carries on for several hours. So it's kind of an interesting uh, interview to watch. But every word he said comported exactly with what I had heard step by step from Turkish mediators, from others that were involved. Um, and what I knew from last uh, March and April and speaking with senior, senior Russian uh, officials, speaking with senior Turkish officials, speaking with others, and, and you know it very well, the negotiations for ending the conflict were actually well advanced in March 2022. And in fact, the impetus came, and I think I, I buy the argument fully that, that from the beginning, this was a war over political specific issues. This was a war over NATO enlargement, Ukraine's neutrality, uh, the state of the Donbass and Minsk II agreement, the state of Crimea, the, 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 you know, what to do about those. It was specific. Uh, what Putin put on the table at the end of 2021 was, in my view, completely negotiable, uh, rather sensible in important ways. I called the White House at the end of 2021, I think, as I've mentioned to you, and said, negotiate. It's, you know, what's on the table makes perfect sense. NATO neutrality is not a concession. It's a desirability from all points of view. Keep the two sides apart. It's not, a, it's not something that you're conceding at great cost. It's something that we, we want to do. Anyway, of course, they refused. Uh, it's not right to say the war started on February 24th. The, the war was already in its eighth year by February 24th, 2022. But the war escalated on uh, February 24th, 2022. And it's pretty clear from all accounts that I've heard and I find quite credible that, that the Russian strategy was that the initial incursion was to force Ukraine quickly to concessions and the negotiating table. And it worked, actually, because Zelensky within a few days said, we don't have to join NATO. We could have neutrality. We need security guarantees and so forth. What I've had explained to me at length, and there's nothing shocking, is that uh, what Zelensky said was received uh, favorably on the Russian side. And President Putin said, okay, th these are a basis of negotiation. And actual work began on drafting documents, just what Bennett says. So all of it that Bennett said comports with exactly the step-by-steps that I, I had heard spelled out at, at some length. Now, what happened was uh, that these negotiations were proceeding actually quite, uh, quite uh, well and quite quickly. And by mid-March, there were, in the Financial Times and other places, positive reports from all three of uh, the uh, involved parties by the Turkish mediators, by the Ukrainian officials, and by senior Russian officials. So you were hearing it from 
all of the parties uh, that were engaged in this. And then, of course, it stopped. And uh, when I tried to understand why it stopped, I was told by absolutely credible sources that one day the Ukrainian showed, Ukrainians showed up and said, we're putting a pause on negotiations. It was just a one side that said, okay, we're stopping negotiations. And I never learned exactly what the underlying uh, uh, nature of that was, but it was pretty clear it came from uh, one side, and it was pretty clear to me that it came from, came from the U.S., because this was these were exactly the days that Biden had come to Brussels, come to NATO, uh, gave his uh, incredible speech uh, in Warsaw, uh, saying, you know, this man cannot stay in power and so forth. And when uh, Lloyd Austin said that our aim is to weaken Russia, the U.S. objectives were quite clear. And obviously, uh, from one day to the next, I think it's right to say Ukraine backed away from the negotiations. Just a footnote on this. I've never believed that Boris Johnson played more than a bit role in this because his arrival in April was after the fact from what I can see. Uh, and with all respect, I don't think uh, the UK is really the decisive call on any of this, uh, even though the dreams of the second Crimean War still uh, loom very large. And, and, and is, I think... As I've said to you, uh, I think Boris Johnson's highest aspiration was to be Palmerston, uh, and he didn't quite make it. But um, in any event, I think it happened before his trip. Uh, I think the U.S. was pretty clear. But what's fascinating about Bennett is he faced exactly this. Interestingly, Bennett said, I was nothing but a mediator or nothing but a transmitter. I checked every day with the White House. I checked every day uh, with uh, Germany, with France. I think he said with Britain also. But in any event, he said we were in, you know, seventh or eighth, the draft of the document. And then they turned it down, uh, meaning the United States. And so I think it, it just ended one day with somebody getting it in their heads. We can do better than this. We don't want this no NATO enlargement on the table. We don't need that. We'll bleed Russia. Uh, we'll do whatever, uh, as was then stated publicly by Biden uh, and uh, Austin in, in future days. But fascinating that he said it so clearly. Of course, mm -hmm. not surprisingly, he started to walk it back within hours because in, in our world, uh, the truth is not allowed to hang out there for more than a few hours at a time before uh, it gets completely smothered. And if you make a mistake like Bennett did, a mistake in quotation marks of uttering the truth for a moment, uh, you'll hear about it from all your friends. And, and so he started a bit to walk it back. But I think uh, what he said was very, very clear. Uh, very straightforward because the interview was a kind of very jocular and straightforward account of things and very sobering. And what is sobering for me about both of these stories is they are completely uncovered and non-discussed in the U.S. 
which means that there is no possible public debate or informed public opinion on any of this inside, because the whole idea is you insulate the small war party from any public understanding or awareness. And the big official media play that game. And they did it with the Bennett account, and they did it uh, again with the Seymour Hersh's account. I completely agree. Two things quickly to say. I think this is a tragic lost opportunity. I think we could have ended the conflict in March. Um, this would have stabilized the situation in Europe. It would have saved thousands of lives. It was a, um, an, a, a compromise. By the way, I you know, came out, I said, I fully support this. I'm absolutely delighted this is happening. And I got lots of criticism from all sorts of people in Russia. A lot of people there were very unhappy, as I remember. But it, it was a compromise that would have satisfied the core interests of every party. Exactly. And throwing, throwing it away in that way was just, I, I think, one of the most irresponsible and worst decisions I've ever seen. The second, and it's a point, this is a point I'm perhaps harping on, on all the time, is that when decision-making decision is made in this very conspiratorial way by small groups of people who are clearly not consulting or keeping others informed and are trying to keep their decisions secret all the time, that makes for bad policy because it means that within this hermetic group at the centre who are making these decisions, they're not being presented with criticisms or alternatives. And that is a very dangerous thing, because they're not hearing the sort of things that might cause them to break and slow down. I think there are two, two things that I would add to that. One is uh, this war absolutely, or this invasion or whatever, absolutely could have been avoided in December 2021. So uh, not only could it have ended in March, it never had to happen because the terms on which it would have stopped uh, Ukraine's neutrality, uh, Russian uh, control of Crimea, uh, and at that point, the Minsk II agreement, for heaven's sake, not even uh, uh, Donbass is part of the Russian Federation or anything like that, just what had been agreed being implemented would have meant that there would have been no military action. But the U.S. just turned it down, or not the U.S., the White House turned it down. The second thing I would say is this particular team of, uh, of uh, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland, and Joe Biden go back to uh, February 2014. And that's important also for this because this war started with the overthrow of Yanukovych and the U.S. participation in the overthrow of Yanukovych. And on that famous intercepted phone call uh, of Newland, she talks about speaking with Jake who has the Veep on ready, you know, to, to do the next steps. Well, the Veep uh, was Joe Biden, of course. Uh, Jake Sullivan was his security advisor. Uh, and uh, there is Victoria Newland. So they're all there together still. This is a, a team 
that has been in place now nine years. And that's telling also because what we're observing is a long, uh, long operation idea of the U.S. neocons. This is not reactive uh, politics or policy. This is an idea of longstanding of expanding the American military alliance to Ukraine and to Georgia to basically, uh, as, as Brzezinski said already back in 1997, to surround Russia in the Black Sea region. And this has been underway for a long time. So expecting them to, to stop on their own is very unlikely. But as you say, if more voices are part of this, if the American public had some understanding, some just glimmer of understanding of what's really going on because someone was telling them some background to this, even if the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had a hearing uh, in, in uh, Congress and in, in uh, the public, rather than being shut down by Victoria Newland the day after he says it's the time for negotiation, we might actually get somewhere and Ukraine might be saved rather than being the victim of this war that is, happens to take place on Ukrainian territory. But this isn't saving Ukraine. This is destroying Ukraine. That's the tragedy of it. Absolutely. Can I just say also an obsessive pursuit of this, of this policy by this small group of people, which it's utterly destructive of Ukraine. It's disastrous for Europe. And it's bad, ultimately, for the United States. This is what the Rand Corporation says. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs, we're almost up to our time. Do you want to just finish with one last word? Oh, well, I'd like to finish with negotiations and so we can get on to some mm. other topics. But uh, in the meantime, thanks, uh, thanks for the chance yeah. to uh, kick, kick these uh, new topics around with you. And uh, I'll be uh, listening to uh, both of you uh, today and uh, every day. So really appreciate being with you. Jeffrey thank Sachs, you thank much. you very much. Thank you. Center for Sustainable Development. The link is down below in the description box, and I will have it as a pinned comment as well. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. Thank you to our moderators. Thank you very much. Take, Take care. care, everybody.